Hi there. Well, I want to first say thank you to Victoria and the whole Contagious Smile team uh, for putting on this kind of spotlight for books and authors and just needed issues that, you know, kind of need their day in the light, so to speak. I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of be a part of this event. So I just wanted to say thank you. Um, my name is Sean Hamilton, and I am the author of this book, uh, When Your Partner Says Hashtag Me Too, Your Role and Responsibility in Their Recovery Process. And it's a book that I wrote because when I was in the role of being a partner next to a survivor of sexual violence, going through the recovery process in the acute phase, I was looking for materials to kind of help myself understand what is my responsibility? What is my role here? Uh, what impact can I make on this recovery process? And is there any resources to help make my life a little bit easier, a little bit more, you know, kind of understanding so that I could be prepared? Uh, what am I supposed to think about in terms of, you know, what's on the horizon for me uh, and our relationship? How do we recover from this? Will we recover from this? Will my partner ever really recover? And it's uh, one of the reasons that that question is so kind of bold on the cover is that I think that's at the heart of what is the big kind of drum beat of a question that's kind of constantly in your mind as a partner going through this experience is, you know, how long is this going to take? You know, will they ever fully recover? Is this something that is going to ultimately destroy my relationship? Is this something that is going to leave me with more pain and suffering? And are they going to be able to recover? Uh, what is this going to do to our expectations for, you know, intimacy and our sex life and uh, our emotional connection, the, you know, closeness that we once had, is that going to be able to be recovered? I think there's a lot of questions that I was left with that I was trying to find answers to. And unfortunately, I just couldn't find any resources at all that were really speaking to my experience. I've been through this before. Um, this isn't the first time. This is my first relationship that's had to be uh, recovered from the kind of pains and trauma of sexual violence and abuse. Uh, my first girlfriend in high school, I talk about in the book, that that was my first experience when I was 15 years old of being a partner to a survivor and really feeling alone and isolated in this process of, you know, this role that I had taken on, uh, seeing the recovery from this type of trauma so close, uh, being shoulder to shoulder, so to speak, through this recovery process and what it, the toll that it takes on, you know, not only the survivor, but those of us that are like there in proximity to this recovery process and the people that they're leaning on emotionally and leaning on to be a support system. Like that's a secondary trauma when we're having to sit there, you know, multiple times and hear these really horrific, tragic stories and feel these feelings so, so close. And, you know, I think that the reason that I had to write this book was I wanted to write a book for my 15-year-old self that felt so alone, that felt isolated from this knowledge, that felt like I was so just on an island in terms of this experience and there wasn't really anybody to talk to about it. There wasn't any guidance and the pitfalls and mistakes that I made just were 
I believe to be avoidable now, like when I look back at it. And if we were to have a society that talked more about these issues and talked more about what it's like to not only have gone through this as a survivor from their perspective, but what is it like to be in a relationship with somebody who may be for the first time really addressing this trauma, really kind of confronting it and going through the recovery process. What is that like? And it's something I feel like needs to be shared with the world because there are, you know, the statistics of this particular crime are kind of overwhelming, you know, just in the sense that how many we know about and we know that it's underreported. And so I, you know, firmly believe kind of a, a conviction I have is that there's millions and millions of people out there just like me. And that's not based in some sort of feeling. It's more based in the facts and the statistics of this, you know, issue. And so it was something that I just had to write because I felt like I wanted to do something. I wanted to be a voice in this issue to help people understand that the recovery process doesn't have to be a scary thing. It doesn't have to be something that is long and arduous and painful. Like there are ways and therapy modalities and ways that we can educate ourselves as partners to help this process be a little bit expedited and not so traumatic on everybody and not really threaten your relationship, but bring you closer um, to each other and recover that sense of intimacy and closeness that I think everybody's kind of longing for uh, when they get into a relationship and the reasons that they're, you know, in a relationship. And so that's why I really wrote the book. So I wanted to talk about just a few key concepts of things that you will get out of the book. And in order to do so, I think that understanding the crime itself is some place that we need to start because it, it really kind of reflects our role and responsibility and why we're so important. And so in order to do that, I just want to talk about the crime of sexual violence first, like the crime of sexual assault from kind of a holistic perspective uh, as an attack on somebody's human experience and their person, their individual kind of uh, entity, so to speak, right? Their personhood. If we think about it, it's a physical attack on their body. That's kind of the easy one to really understand. But it also has an implication and impact on their mental and emotional well-being. It also can have a drastic impact on somebody's spiritual understanding and their connection to whatever higher power they may have um, believed in Prior to the assault, it can completely shatter that worldview in terms of, you know, feeling like somebody was there or somebody's always looking out for them to protect them. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? It draws into question all of these things and can really be complicated and more exponential the more weight that their belief system has in their life. And so that's a really devastating thing for somebody to have to reconcile. On top of that, we have the feelings of trust, and that means kind of a two-way street. Their ability to trust themselves, the discernment they have for decisions they make, as well as trusting other people and you know how they view their kind of place in society and the communities that they're a part of. Um, it's, it's a challenging thing for a lot of survivors to, to reconcile with. And then on top of that, we have like 
the sense of just safety and security and agency and autonomy over their own body that's been kind of taken away from them because of this one particular act. And, you know, and it doesn't have to be just one particular act. It could have been a series of abuses that have been perpetrated over a number of years. And so that just further ingrains this, you know, kind of deviation from their ability to trust themselves and trust other people, feel safe and secure in their own body and their own communities and this sense of agency and autonomy over their own body. And so they're trying to get that back. Um, I think that the breakdown in the intimacy and the desires for sexuality, knowing that this is something that, you know, this is a concept, this is a, a basic human need. I mean, you know, Abraham Maslow like placed that next to water, food and shelter on the hierarchy of needs is uh, our need for con connection and love and, and sex. And so when this type of abuse has happened, this is a, you know, a direct assault on somebody's ability to meet their most basic needs that are at a fundamental level. And when we continue out and really understand somebody's experience, the economic toll that this takes on somebody's life is, it's huge. I mean, there's studies done here in America that look at the economic impact that this has on somebody's life. And they've concluded that it's about an average of $144,000 that they've placed on terms of economic impact on, you know, just an individual survivor of sexual violence over the course of their life from, you know, the cost of medical bills, the cost of, you know, mental health treatment, the cost of loss of work and the inability to maintain gainful employment. Um, and then we're looking at the aspect of just the, the future toll and stress that this is taking on somebody's livelihood. There is, you know, a staggering amount that, you know, this particular crime leads to guilt and shame spirals that end up taking somebody's life because of suicide, because they just couldn't, um, you know, get on top of and get over a lot of the things. They couldn't reconcile a lot of the emotions that they're feeling. And also just the kind of future impact on the, the stress and depression and anxiety and what that leads to in terms of, you know, just the basic kind of heart disease and stress-related illnesses, diabetes, you know, all these types of autoimmune dysfunction and stuff like that. And so when we think about the holistic impact that this has, this crime of sexual violence has on the individual, then it just makes sense that we need to be approaching this from a holistic perspective when we talk about the recovery process. So when we think about that, we look at, okay, we have teams of doctors and nurses that are there to help the survivor through the kind of first stages of the physical trauma. We have physical therapists that can help with things like vaginismus, uh, tightening of the kind of pelvic floor muscles that can happen to survivors um, and create a lot of dysfunction and pain uh, physically. And so we have teams of doctors and nurses that are there and therapists and things to, to help. Uh, mental health therapists are there to help through the mental and emotional anguish and the reconciliation process. We have spiritual leaders and friends and family that can help try and provide context to, you know, rekindle or reconcile that spiritual disconnection that may occur. Then we have, you know, all of these different aspects of, well, how do we handle the recovery from the loss of intimacy? When do we bring sexuality back into their life? And we start to really understand that, well, we as partners, the, the, the intimate partner in somebody's life is going to play a pretty big role in bringing that intimacy and sexuality back in their life. 
You know, there's, there's so many different kinds of therapy modalities out there, but all of them will fall short of actually understanding what it's like and implementing intimacy and sexuality until they are in a relationship and they're engaged in sexual activity. And from my experience, being a partner multiple times now, I can speak to just the, the impact that that has in somebody's life. When they start to bring that back in, there is a high probability that they're going to experience some sort of negative emotional reaction and responses to that. So that's really what I kind of focus on in this book, is to really look at a lot of different things, but I really narrow in because I want to be as authentic and as vulnerable and as raw with this information and what the experience is like to prepare people for the actual events that could take place in your relationship. Now, they're not guaranteed, right? Every survivor's story of abuse and, and violence is different. Their impact on it, the way that they experience it is different. The way that they experience the recovery process is going to be different. And so we just have to recognize there's not a one-size-fits-all answer, unfortunately. Um, it can be messy and it can be varied in what is going on in somebody's life and how we have to approach that. But what I do think is that there is ways to prepare ourselves as partners because if we just think about the probability that somebody's going to have a negative emotional experience, then we can, you know, during an act of sex, then we can kind of prepare ourselves for that particular uh, environment and experience because it's a it's an important moment in a survivor's recovery process. And as we will, you know, as I talk about in the book, it's 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 from my perspective one of the most important aspects of helping them recover because it's it's one of the most critical moments. It's one of the you know, they're reconnecting with this basic need that they have in their life. And we as partners play a really important role in that. And there's nobody else in the room. There's nobody we can tag in. There's no therapists that are going to take over if things get messy and emotional. So we really have to prepare ourselves for that. And it doesn't need to be something that we're afraid of, but it does need to be something that we have educated ourselves about and kind of created a strategy for and a plan for. So that's what we talk about in the book is the worst case scenario is what I call it is we're in the midst of a sexual experience and somebody has a negative emotional reaction. They have a triggering event, whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, a flashback, kind of memory that may occur given any number of different stimulus. And uh, that ends up triggering them into a negative emotional experience, a full-blown kind of PTSD reaction, a panic attack. And so we need to be prepared for and you know understand how we need to show up in that moment because ultimately in that particular case, there has been a fork in the road that has just presented itself. We are either going to keep them on the path of healing or we're going to uh, further ingrain that trauma and potentially cause more harm and exacerbate the kind of guilt and shame spirals, so to speak. So what we do is we take a little snapshot, right? What I do is take you know a little thought experiment and go, okay, let's just envision this moment and try to understand what the feelings and emotional kind of cluster are we going to experience as a partner in this situation and when? And then what can we do in the moment to really help regulate ourselves so that we're in a place that we can emotionally make the space for the, this person's you know, kind of processing that's happening in terms of the trauma they've been through. So if we take a look at that, and we just take a snapshot, right? Just a moment in time. We're in, the, we're in the midst of a sexual experience. And so we understand there's going to be a lot of emotions happening there that are all pretty much in the realm of 
uh, passion and, and kind of in the good feelings range, right? There's arousal, there's this anticipation, you know, kind of this marching towards this orgasmic bliss that every, you know, that that's what this experience is kind of there for. And, and, and it's, and it's an incredibly positive experience. And so much so that in the event that somebody has an emotional trigger and then all of a sudden on a dime, it's going in a completely opposite direction. And now that future that we thought was going to take place, that orgasmic bliss is no longer a future that exists. And it's kind of been taken away. And so both people involved in the situation are now feeling a sense of disappointment, frustration. Um, maybe resentment can build up. And now anger and rage at the fact that, you know, whoever has just harmed this person I love is now creating this ripple effect in my life. And now it's creating a lot of discomfort. And there's this emotional darkness that is now present in my life. And I'm having to navigate this incredibly difficult swing of emotions. In one second, I was just kind of marching towards this anticipation of this incredibly amazing, blissful feeling. And now I'm navigating this incredibly dark space where this person that, you know, I'm, I care for and that we're involved in this kind of intimate moment is now, you know, potentially kind of in a fetal position in tears, right? This is the worst case scenario. They're having a panic attack. They're crying. There's a whole lot of just trauma that's kind of bubbling to the surface in some way, shape or form. And now we're dealing with this surge of different emotions that all take place all at once. And if we take a snapshot of that moment, that moment that we realize that they are in an uncomfortable emotional situation. So we're just aroused and now we're confused. And all of a sudden, this is all happening in a span of a couple seconds, really. And so we're having to process our feelings in some way to be able to regulate our kind of that one situation, regulate that out, deal with our feelings of disappointment and frustration so we're not kind of reflecting that back at them, creating a more amplified kind of guilt and shame spiral, as well as deal with our own feelings of worry and fear and you know overwhelm and a sense of our own guilt and shame. Like, what did I do that may have caused this to happen? The sense of confusion and overwhelm is, uh, is really intense. And so if we start to really process that, uh, this becomes a, a, a pretty big deal in terms of how are we going to handle this? How are we going to navigate this particular moment? Because as I said, this is an important moment in their recovery process. This is a moment that they can either start processing this in a positive way, right? Not that it's going to be you know, mitigated in terms of the challenge of the emotional feelings that they may be experiencing. It's going to be uncomfortable. But what we can do in a positive way is to really help process how they're feeling. All these things that came up were potentially more than likely caused by an emotional trigger, which is linked to some pain point, some sort of uh, processing that their mind and body is still having this connection for. And so we can help them in those moments really kind of understand that so that we play this really incredibly important role of keeping it all in this space of healing so that when we can, at a later time, hand this over to a mental health professional, they're in a space of understanding. They're in a space of processing and wanting to be able to, to confront that and deal with it rather than kind of, you know, keep that moment all about us. And all of a sudden we're in a place where we're making our disappointment, our frustration kind of, you know, center stage. 
and we are you know drowning out their voice of of pain and we're drowning out their voice of you know kind of what's going on with them and we made it all about us and all of a sudden their guilt and shame spiral starts to continue to to play and and now they're the, the processing is going to be shut down a little bit because what we've done is basically not created a space in which they feel safe to actually have this kind of catharsis and this kind of experience of processing and so it's really being able to handle those moments and so in the book i talk about uh three particular skill sets that you know we can move forward with that we can you know and i want to leave those of you watching this video right now just with an understanding if you want to learn more about it i would appreciate you picking up the book and we'll talk more about that in a second but the three things are uh they sound easy at first i just want to warn you they sound they sound simple on the surface but i promise you they are much more difficult uh in the moment so it is just being there making space and then something called checking in now just being there there is a skill of active listening because what we want to do is is be present we don't want to just like get up and walk away but we need to be there we need to just be there which means active listening which means not giving somebody a solution not trying to fix the problem and this is where it becomes really challenging because most of us are conditioned with if we're presented a problem if we hear that somebody we care about is struggling in some way we typically want to chime in with our opinions and our fixes and our solutions and our you know this us right we want to just kind of interject us into the situation and what that runs the you know kind of tendency to do is drown out their voice right they're just trying to share and we need to be grateful that they've allowed us into this moment so that we can help them process this but it's not about us it's about them and so we just need to be there and one of the things that i have found helpful in my relationship something really valuable and beneficial that my wife and i you know that that i practiced in this moment is if i need to say something which is always a need for a lot of us is that awkward silence is very hard to just sit in and not feel like i need to say something so what i came up with was this phrase that helps me just recognize my gratitude for the moment for for the kind of strength and courage it took her to kind of tell me about what was going on with her but also kind of satiate my need to say something and it's this phrase and i just want to give it to you because i feel like it might be valuable for you thank you for sharing it's a simple phrase it says a lot in very few words and it just allows for the moment to continue being about them processing opening up and just sharing what they're feeling and then we active listen so that we can understand because we're kind of trying to understand emotional triggers and we're learning in the process because in my experience this isn't you know it's not just one time that we're going to experience maybe some challenging moments uh when we're bringing sex and intimacy back into our lives there there could be multiple challenging moments and so what we're trying to learn is what are their triggers so that we can really assess and identify those so that sometimes we can steer clear of certain things that might trigger them and in the short term in terms of the acute phase when everything is really intense um and then we can also identify places that we will later need to kind of reassess you know so that we can clear up some of those triggers so that we're not kind of walking on eggshells so to speak through um you know through our intimate life and through our sex life we don't want to 
you know, they don't want to be, you know, kind of always in this space of, oh my gosh, am I going to get triggered? There's no crystal ball that allows us to know when these moments are going to happen. And so we're trying to, as partners, build a database of understanding that. And active listening is a really important skill set in this particular moment to help with that. And so that phrase, thank you for sharing, it just helps, you know, kind of two birds with one stone, so to speak, is to, you know, allow them to know that they're, you know, that, that we're grateful for being there and that what they've shared with us is something that we value, while at the same time satiating our need to say something because that, that silence can be heavy and awkward in those moments because it's a, it's a pretty intense emotional experience. Then comes this idea of making space. And it is challenging if you don't really understand what it means because, you know, making space means not only physical space, but emotional space, right? It means not interjecting all of our thoughts and feelings into the moment. It means allowing the moment to kind of sit there and be present for it and bear witness to it, which is challenging enough. And then we need to be able to make the physical space. And this is the, this is the complication of this, is that it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, it's kind of a, a, a Goldilocks moment, so to speak. We don't want to give them too little space. We don't want to smother them and make them feel, you know, kind of almost claustrophobic in this moment of emotional distress. But we also don't want to give them too much space and make them feel isolated and alone and, you know, kind of alone with their thoughts and in this kind of guilt shame spiral. So we need to figure out what that means. And what I have found is that just being maybe on the other side of the couch on the other side of the bed. And then that's where this idea of kind of checking in comes into play is in the moment, checking in means I'm moved over to the other side of the bed and I ask a question, is this enough space? Is it too little space? Like I just wanna make sure that you know that I'm here, but I don't wanna be all up in your business, right? So we check in and say, hey, you know, is everything okay? Is this okay to, is it okay for me to be here? You know, because maybe they do need you to leave the room for a second, right? Maybe they do need that, but we just need to check in and see what see what it is that they need. Um, checking in is also an idea that my wife and I implemented very early on in our relationship. Because as I said, um, you know, she was assaulted two weeks after we started dating, and so we implemented this idea of checking in. Which to us, what it meant was that on you know a certain day of the week, we chose Sunday. Uh, we chose a moment in time where we would sit down and have intentional conversations that were challenging. We would face it kind of head on uh, and make those challenging, tense conversations uh, that sometimes can be scary at first. Uh, we would intentionally have them in moments that weren't those kind of emotionally triggered moments, those heightened moments. And so what we would do is we'd sit down and we would just have conversations. You know, hey, what about, you know, in this last week, uh, have I done that has, you know, helped? What have I done that, you know, I could work on? And then really the, the, the big pivotal ones are what did I, what have I done that you, you absolutely need me to not do again? Um, and that becomes really, really important information and critical in those moments of, of checking in. And so those are the, the, the three things that I like to talk about really help define the moment, right? And in the book, we go into self-regulation, which is another kind of uh, important skill set just all around in people's lives, but it really comes into play uh, in this worst case scenario because we want to self-regulate ourselves out of that. And so it's something that we go into in the book. Uh, 
And so I want to leave you with that and, and really just ask that if this is something that you think that you need in your life, this information is something that you find valuable or that you know somebody that might find it valuable, I wanted to just let you know, coming up in April is the Sexual Assault Awareness Month, kind of a national campaign where all the organizations will be uh, running awareness campaigns and everything. And we have partnered uh, with the Institute for Survivor of Sexual Violence, as well as the Contagious Smile podcast and the team, Victoria and her team. Uh, we've all partnered together to kind of raise awareness because the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence is uh, an organization of therapists that provide pro bono treatment of rapid resolution therapy to survivors of sexual violence. And the reason that I feel so proud to kind of link up and partner with them is because rapid resolution therapy is the therapy that um, I credit and my wife credits for saving my wife's life on, on really multiple occasions. My, my wife, Kristen, she did a TED talk in 2013 called The Life-Changing Power of Words. And in that TEDx talk, she goes on to talk about how rapid resolution therapy changed her life. Uh, it literally brought her back from the brink of feeling like she was going to die at any second. She had and this moment of really traumatic grief because she lost her sister due to a drunk driver. And the toll that that grief played on her nervous system ended up, uh, you know, creating a a condition called functional neurological disorder. Um, and she was having seizures up to nine times a day, all sorts of other neurological symptoms, narcolepsy, Tourette's, dystonia, all sorts of other kinds of uh, breakdowns in her system. She was a patient of the Mayo Clinic for over two years and anything that they would do uh, would exacerbate those symptoms. And so it wasn't until she got in to see Dr. John Connolly, the founder of Rapid Resolution Therapy and the founder of the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence, and got in and for a session of Rapid Resolution Therapy. And in one session, just a two and a half hour session, she's been seizure-free and symptom-free ever since. And she, uh, you know, we credit that as well as being one of the major catalysts for helping her recovery process be so um, kind of effective, short, and it didn't have to be this long drawn out thing. And so seeing that firsthand and the power of this therapy modality and the fact that there are thousands of therapists that are being trained all over the world, it's something I feel very proud to help with. And so what we're doing is we're doing this drive in April. Uh, where we are going to donate 50% of all the proceeds for this book um, to the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence. And so we want to raise as much money as possible for the pro bono therapy so we can get survivors, you know, kind of out of suffering and reduce the impact that this, you know, kind of horrific trauma uh, it has on their lives. And so I would just, my call to action is that if this is something that you would uh, want to be a part of, if you want to donate to this cause, if you want to be a part of raising this money and get this, you know, really powerful resource that we've created to kind of help build a bridge of communication between survivors and their partners, um, I would ask that you purchase the book in April. And then on top of that, what I would ask is that you would purchase it within a seven-day window of April 5th to April 12th. Now, I'm going to explain why that is, because we're trying to get this book onto, you know, through the, 
you know, kind of filters of Amazon and at Barnes and Noble. And we really want to get it onto the New York Times bestseller because what this will do is just help elevate the message, help elevate our mission, help elevate the amount of money that we can help raise for uh, these different organizations who are on the front line, really fighting the fight. And that window of time is just the criteria in which we get judged by as authors who have put together books and resources for people. So if we can get as many people as possible to buy the book within this small little window, then we stand a pretty good chance of getting to the top of the lists of different categories on Amazon, but also just the overall category of books. If we can get to that number one bestseller spot, that would be absolutely really, really beneficial for a lot of people in terms of the resources that we can then start to provide, the momentum that that builds behind the message and the mission. And then again, you know, the criteria for the New York Times bestseller as well. We just want to be able to to meet that criteria. And so that's what we would ask. If you feel compelled, just do so between the 5th and the 12th. And again, I want to thank Victoria for allowing me, you know, some time to talk to you guys. And I I really appreciate those of you who stuck it out to the end and and listened to my message. And um, I look forward to, you know, serving this community and and everybody else as well in the Contagious Smile podcast kind of universe and everything around Victoria. She's incredible. um, And I'm I'm really honored to, to, you know, call her a fast friend. And, you know, her causes have become my causes and now my causes have become hers. And so this is just an incredible community that I can't, you know, wait to just continue to be a part of. So I thank you. All right. This life that a little girl lives Taken out of a world and then forced to live in prison Not in the physical form, but a mental state of mind See, she couldn't go to sleep at night without tears in her eyes Stripped of her innocence at an early age And forced to live with the memory of the tragedy of being raped By a friend who pretended to be an admirable man Convinced her to drop a guard and then on came the avalanche Trampled and stampeded over and over again I'll never believe that God could ever forgive this type of sin Cause if he did, I would turn my back Never believe in him again because a father that touches his daughter doesn't deserve to live amongst mortal men Now this girl would try to disguise her pain and hide it behind her private The moment she would get angry, it would escape through her eyes Like the moisture in the air that slowly bursts a storm She could only hold her pain for so long before it began to pour Somewhere in this life I know
pain that was buried inside her She carried the burden on her shoulders and in her person No matter how fast she ran, it was always one step further than her nerves could bear Plus she never learned to care, cause all she'd ever been told is that the world isn't fair Now therein lie the cause of it, all her hopes were halted How could she solve the conflict if she never saw the problem? Now the weight of her mistakes just made a day with regret And depending on the weather, they're planning to get together in her head To collect the debt from all the stress that she repressed In order to lessen the pressure that she broke bubbling in her chest But nevertheless, it had already been neglected for too long The pain had already filled her brain, killed her and moved on By the time her help had arrived and came inside All they could do is reminisce that she kissed his world goodbye Somewhere in this land.